Hey everyone, and welcome to this special edition of Snake Oilers. My name's Patrick Gray. I am on leave this week, but I have popped into the office to publish this podcast. Uh, The regular weekly Risky Business show will be back week after next. For those of you who don't know what these Snake Oilers shows are all about, uh, they are wholly sponsored podcasts we do at Risky Biz HQ, where vendors pay us to record these interviews so they can pitch their products to you, the listeners. And we have three vendors pitching today. We'll be hearing from KSOC, a Kubernetes security company. We'll also be hearing from Sneak about its new uh, Sneak Cloud product designed to address infrastructure as code issues. Uh, those two are coming up later, but first up, we're chatting with Dylan Airy, who is the founder of TruffleSec. Now, you may have already heard of TruffleHog. Uh, this is an open source dis- uh, open source uh, secret discovery engine. Uh, so the idea is you can throw TruffleHog at like your S3 buckets, your code repos, whatever, and it can scan the content there looking for secrets like credentials and API keys uh, that just shouldn't be there. Sloppy secrets handling has gotten an awful lot of organizations owned over the years. So naturally there's demand for an enterprise level tool to do this sort of thing as well. And that's what Dylan has created with TruffleSec. Uh, I've gotten to know Dylan a little bit over the last uh, year or so. He's extremely smart. uh, And this is a really interesting interview, even if you're not in the market for a tool like this. Here he is explaining what type of secrets TruffleHog can go after. In a developer context, a secret is often thought of as like an API credential, a password, something that can be used to authenticate to another system. Uh, And then within that, you have um, user-based credentials. So like, how can Patrick log into Okta? And then you have system-to-system credentials, which is how can system A authenticate to system B's database? We focus on the system-to-system credentials when we do our detection. And usually we focus on cloud and SaaS-based credentials. So like your Amazon Web Token, for example, the Amazon Web Token that might have full access to all of your most sensitive data and can be used from anywhere in the world since Amazon's APIs are sitting on the public internet. Um, you don't want those credentials landing in the wrong place, but when you're a huge organization, you've got a couple hundred developers, uh, inevitably they get posted or placed in some place where you wouldn't want them. Uh, and that's where our uh, open source tool kind of came in a couple years ago. I wrote this as an individual contributor it was really good at identifying those types of keys on public GitHub, and there wasn't really a good solution at the time that would go through all the old history. So I just wrote it as a, as a script that I was doing bug bounties that I figured maybe some other bug hunters would, would want to use it to find keys and report to companies. Um, but when I put it on GitHub, it blew up in a way I wasn't expecting. Like yeah. a lot of people started uh, using this thing to find keys, and there were way more keys on GitHub than I was expecting. And so it really became like a de facto standard of everybody running TruffleHog to find these things internally, externally, this, that, and the other. But it was pretty focused on GitHub, which is interesting because like these secrets leak out a myriad of ways, right? Pastebin and Play Store and all these other places. But it's just because the tooling at the time that I wrote was pretty focused on GitHub that got everybody to put a heavy focus on GitHub. And now you have a lot of SaaS vendors that'll kind of layer in a weak secrets offering on top of all the other things they support. Again, pretty focused on GitHub because everybody got evangelized about it because of this trouble hog thing that I put out a couple years ago. So that's a long winded way of saying um, truffle hog is an open source tool I wrote a while ago to find API keys, credentials, passwords, those types of things, which we refer to as secrets. And uh, since then, both the open source tool has, the open source tool has evolved quite a bit. Um, We've invested a ton into um, continuing to build that and make it best in class. 
But we also, in parallel, built out an enterprise offering that's kind of built on top of the open source secret scanning engine. A lot of these famous, some of these at least, famous data breaches, like the Uber one that got their CISO in, in, in so much trouble, like that was based on an exposed secret, right? So this is a thing that actually does get people owned uh, and quite a lot. Uh, but yeah, the, the enterprise version is just, uh, it will look for these things in more, more places, right? Yeah, Truffle Enterprise will search your Slack, it'll search your Jira, it'll search your Confluence, and it's also continuous monitoring, whereas the open source tool is kind of like a one-shot yeah, command Yeah, it's like a point, point in time thing, right? Whereas the, it's, I, I'm guessing you've cloudified the enterprise offering, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the open source tool was always a hacker script that I put together on a weekend. So in a lot of ways, we've stayed true to those roots. It's a hacker script that's included in Kali Linux that a bug bounty or a researcher or a pen tester can use as a one-shot report. Uh, but if you want to set up long-term continuous monitoring, um, that's where the enterprise offering kind of comes in. Now, who's buying this, right? Because I'd imagine, you know, the, this is something that's designed to scoop up mistakes that tend to happen among developer teams, but it might not necessarily be the developer teams who are, who are actually buying it, right? It might be security or if, the, if it's a DevOps environment, I guess it is kind of the dev team. Uh, but yeah, wh wh where are you actually seeing success with this thing? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I think developers, the one thing that's nice about this problem is it's very easy to get everybody aligned on it. Developers know these secrets shouldn't be leaked out. But the tricky thing is that it can sometimes lead to a little bit of a reverse incentive for a developer to go out and buy this tool because it means putting more work on their plate. It means discovering more security vulnerabilities that they have to deal with. Um, so usually that's where you kind of bring in the, the, you know, the external arbiter or whatever, the, the security team to say, actually, we need those things added to the sprint. It you know, balances um, risk and loss in other ways. And so it's usually the security team that, that comes in and procures it. And then from there, we're usually able to get user attribution on who leaked the keys out and automatically dispatch those keys back to the developers that are doing the leaking. Because so that was, that was going to be another question, right? Is often you have these uh, these tools, these security tools that require the dev, the dev team to action them. And, and that can even be stuff like Vuln scanners, really, for like those web web app Vuln scanners and whatever the security team might run it. And then they say, hey, developer, you got to fix this thing. And it can turn into a bit of a bun fight. Like, how have you made that process easier? Is it like, does it plug into Slack or like, what? how does, how does it work in that way? It does. Um, we can automatically file Jira tickets. Uh, we yeah. can connect to Slack and directly message the developers that do the leaking. Um, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head where if you were to have 2,000 engineers that all maybe leak one key a year or something like that, there's no way you could take a 10-person application security team and have them triage 2,000 things a year. So we really think the best people suited to do that remediation are the people doing the leaking. It's the only thing that really scales well at a large organization. Um, and so usually it's the security team that'll recognize the gap, go out, purchase the product and set it up. And then it'll be the developers driving the remediation. And um, in some cases, the developers uh, that are prevented from leaking the secrets out of the first place, depending on how we're integrated with them. So do you have like some sort of dashboard where it will show the people who are running the tool, hey, this one, you know, developers notified like 30 days ago, you know, it's still there, maybe go give them a give them a tap on the shoulder. Do you have those sort of features? Yeah, we do. And, and the, the thing that you touched on earlier, that dynamic key tracking to make sure that the key is still active, um, that's something that we can continuously do to see exactly when that key gets rotated and when it gets taken care of. So there actually isn't an action that's needed on our side to say that the key's been rotated. We're able to automatically detect that based on the verifying of the key. 
And it also gives us a really powerful capability you don't usually get out of SAST, which is an incredible amount of confidence. If this password or key can authenticate to the system, then there's no ambiguity. You know that there's something that needs to be cleaned up there, and that just allows us to have a layer of confidence that you wouldn't normally see out of a, a normal SaaS vendor. Now, I guess, the, you know, the, the, the next question, Dylan, is like, what are your future plans um, for this? Because, I mean, you and I, I think we first spoke uh, maybe nine months ago, about a year ago sort of thing. And, um, you know, you, you're very much uh, at the point now where you've executed on a bunch of the plans that you had. So very accurate in terms of what you told me um, this thing would do. Where, where are you going to take it next? I mean, so the biggest focus for me has always been this like fundamental open source um, component to the company. Like I was in my open source club at my university and I, I saw how powerful it is to be able to release free software to people that otherwise can't afford expensive enterprise software, right? You have students that are able to play around with Trufflehog that would otherwise never be able to um, afford a, a piece of enterprise software. And so I think that's a big component is as this company grows, we're going to continue to invest in open source and continue to give free and open source features back. And a couple of questions you asked me of like, oh, well, this is the enterprise piece. Oh, this is the enterprise piece. Actually, like the answer to a lot of those are actually no, a lot of that is open source and we're going to continue to open source more and continue to give more back to the community. So that's one piece is like, um, that's always going to be a piece of this company is open source. The second piece is like, I don't think a lot of people realize how pervasive of a problem this is and how much is accelerating over time as we become more SaaS connected and more cloud connected, those APIs are all sitting on the public internet. And so uh, as we put more and more of our data in more and more vendors behind more and more um, SaaS and cloud offerings, the risk of exposure, the glue that holds all that crap together are basically these keys and passwords that are just continuously leaking out a myriad of different ways, whether that's the iOS store, the Play Store, Pastebin, you know, another interesting one that I did a blog post on a little while ago is we're kind of seeing this shift in terms of web development. It's becoming more and more front end heavy. Um, more I was staple. just about to I was just about to ask you because you actually made a browser extension to do secrets detection and some of the stuff that you found. Uh, what was the one? I mean, I've seen the video. I can't remember what the organization was. It was an airline or something where you you, you basically use this extension. It's almost like using Burp or something like that, but it just does secret de- secrets detection. Tell tell us tell us about the the secrets that spat out the ones that went in that video. Yes, I mean it's just another way to um, uh, that, that, that these secrets are leaking out. But this is becoming more popular over time. And I actually first noticed this when I was working internally at companies, and I'm noticing like internally developed web apps are leaning more into this pattern than externally developed web apps. Um, it's basically this idea of like, okay, let's say you're a front end developer and you want to deploy an application. Um, there's like a uh, at, at previous companies I've worked at, there's like a fast way and there's a slow way. The slow way is if you need compute and backend infrastructure, you got to go to the infrastructure gods and pray to them for you know a Kubernetes workload or whatever, and somebody to hold your hand while you get this thing deployed. Um, and then there's the fast way, which is if you have an entirely front end application that just needs to be thrown behind a CDN and then you're done, basically kind of thing. Um, so like GitHub Pages will host front end JavaScript and HTML for you as an example, and so um, there are really easy ways to get front ends deployed without complex backends. Well, the cloud providers, I think, have taken notice to that, and they've gone out of their way to actually allow front ends to talk directly to cloud APIs um, through opening up something called cross-origin resource sharing. It's one of the most fundamental security protections in the browser. It basically prevents the front end of Facebook from talking to the back end of Google, which you wouldn't want, right? You wouldn't want your Facebook accessing your Google data. 
Um, well, the cloud providers have actually recognized, well, wait a minute, if front ends can talk directly to our APIs, it can open up new accessibility for developers to be able to talk easier to the cloud without the need of backend infrastructure. And so we're seeing this growing trend of front-end apps talking directly to clouds. And when I worked internally at companies, I saw front-end apps that were doing really complex things directly with cloud APIs, like accessing S3, reading and writing, talking directly to a database, interacting with BigQuery, all those types of things without the need of a backend by just including a web token, um, like a, a secret, directly into the JavaScript. And so I said, wait a minute, <laughs> that's not great that it's happening internally, but it's probably happening externally as well. So I hacked together on a weekend script, a pretty simple Chrome extension that used at this point an outdated rule set um, for, for secrets that doesn't include all the verification stuff like that. It's very much a hacked together uh, project just to see what I would find. And immediately I start finding Amazon web tokens and, and Slack webhooks and all these credentials buried in really deep thousand lines of JavaScript. Um, the one I think you're referencing is a AWS key that was on the front page of weather.com, um, yeah. which is an interesting one. I, I disclosed it to them and they got it removed pretty quickly. And usually that program doesn't let you publicly disclose things, but I basically said to them, hey, listen, like this is in archive.org and it's gonna be in archive.org in perpetuity. So regardless of whether or not you remove this Amazon key, uh, it's still gonna be on the public internet and it's still gonna be there is it okay if I talk about that? And the response to it was basically, okay, well, anything on the public internet is on the public internet already. That's, that's fine. And so I, I'm, you know, I, that's one of the examples I can give, but there's plenty of examples where I'll disclose a bug and they say, you can't, you know, you can't publicly talk about it. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's AWS tokens. AWS tokens everywhere, you know? Right. I mean, that's, the, that's, that's basically the thing. Look, we're out of time. Uh, Dylan Ari, uh, look, thanks so much for joining us. Um, you know, it's really fascinating stuff. I, I, I love it. And, um, you know, I'm sure that a bunch of people listening to this um, would have found that very interesting. Oh, quick question though. Can people just get that Chrome extension or is that just like a hack together personal thing? You can get the Chrome extension. The problem is it is a hack together. It's both, right? And so if yeah, you install yeah, yeah, yeah. it, it's going to have um, you know outdated rule set, some false positives. Its performance is trash. It's going to make your uh, computer <laughs> CPU spin up or whatever. It doesn't meet the standards of open source Truffle Hog today. And so in the future, we plan on taking our secrets detection engine um, and porting it over to the Chrome extension to make the Chrome extension a lot more polished and do the verification and all that stuff. It's funny. We actually found that uh, you can take this Go truffle hog and compile it to WebAssembly, and it magically works all the cross-origin policy stuff isn't an issue because all the cloud providers have opened their apis up and you can actually run the new version of truffle hog uh, in javascript and so our plan longer term is to make that chrome extension a lot more polished today it's available in some form you can play around with it but i'd look forward to a more polished detection <laughs> don't judge me when you run it i think is what you're saying all right dylan <laughs> thanks so much for joining us a uh, real pleasure to chat to you yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. That was Dylan Airy of TruffleSec there. Big thanks to him for that. And you can find TruffleSec at truffelsecurity.com. It is time for our next snake oiler now. Jimmy Mester is the CTO and co-founder of KSOC or Kubernetes Security Operations Center. KSOC is designed to secure your Kubernetes environments against misconfigurations and vulnerabilities. But as you're about to hear, it's not just another Linux agent that has been sort of repurposed for Kubernetes security. It's actually designed first and foremost as a Kubernetes tool. Here's Jimmy. So which, what you've kind of seen in the past is a lot of, you know, XDR, EDR vendors 
trying to take their agent, place it on a node that runs containers, uh, essentially instrumenting system calls at the, the kernel level. Um, we actually instrument and work within uh, the Kubernetes API and the other components that make up what we call a Kubernetes cluster. So there's uh, there's kind of a story uh, that each cluster is telling through its events that the API is generating, the API audit logs, um, who's accessing what, the collection of configurations, and that's where we want to be. Our goal is to make the ecosystem that you run your workloads in as secure as possible, not to necessarily instrument kernel level calls at this moment. Okay, so what's the advantage of doing it via the API? What sort of stuff are you looking for? Like, uh, you know, what sort of stuff are you going to see when you do it this way, as opposed to uh, trying to do the old, you know, Linux XDR approach? Yeah, so the the kind of headline theme is make Kubernetes secure by default. And we, I do believe that you can actually construct a cluster and multiple clusters in a way that has the guardrails needed to run workloads in a sane way. So we chose this route because number one, it's, it's easy. It's lightweight. We get a lot of feedback that, you know, 10 minutes into the install, it's done and everyone's that that's it. And you start, you know, seeing everything that you need to from the API perspective. We don't play in the kernel space at this moment, just because we feel like we can have a greater impact if we look at the Kubernetes control plane. So things like misconfigurations at scale are really noisy, hard to address. Um, so think, you know, we think about a Kubernetes workload that has certain level of privileges, that's going to manifest itself sometimes across 20, 30, 40 different clusters. And our goal is to actually give you in the form of code, um, a remediation that you can actually go implement as a developer to fix the problem at its core, which is actually code, not necessarily blocking system calls after the fact. Uh, so ease of use mixed with, um, you know, you know, we're also you know, we're also looking at things like role-based access control. That's a configuration inside of the cluster that's really complicated and hard to even visualize, yet alone get to this place of least privilege that we all. Well, I, I think the problem about. when you when you're trying to do it with uh, you know a Linux tool is you're sort of in essence, trying to recreate the control plane, aren't you? You, you know? do, yeah. Uh, using using that tooling, and it's funny what you said before about like you know stuff happening at scale. And this is the problem with orchestrated environments is you make a wrong mis a mistake in the wrong place and you've made that mistake everywhere <laughs> very quickly, right? You can replicate badness, right? Over and yeah. over and over again. And you get in this situation where what was a test cluster is all of a sudden promoted to production. And then now there's four or five of them and you have to kind of go back in time and figure out how to run that type of workload in a different way. So yeah, our goal is to help help the people writing code uh, in the form of Kubernetes manifest, you know, do it with guardrails. Um, and, you know, we have blocking capabilities and things like that at the control plane layer that, that aid in that process as well. Now, of course, there is the so what uh, in all of this, right? Because we haven't really seen uh, attackers making off with corporate data by, you know, uh, getting into these sort of containerized environments, right? It's still very much a, you know, Windows land uh, as far as um, attackers are concerned. But compliance regimes are starting to actually pay attention to containerized uh, environments. Is that right? Mm -hmm. They are. Yeah. Yeah. There's PCI guidance now. 
um, that co- covers the gamut, really, uh, authorization, authentication, network segmentation pertaining to, you know, Kubernetes, which is, uh, I never thought that day would come, to be honest. Like, I, you know, it's, uh, it's something in my past life where I ran Kubernetes, I dealt with PCI head on, and usually an auditor would come into that environment and ask where your antivirus was. And that was like the only question. And that's not really covering what needs to be covered. Yeah, I've, I've always found the the show me the antivirus on your Linux boxes thing really funny, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's hilarious when compounded with Kubernetes. It's like, that's the thing you care about right now? Okay, yeah, sure. So um, what are they looking for in, in terms of uh, Kubernetes uh, uh, management and security, etc.? You, you know, it's it's fairly broad. Uh, who who has access to what? How are they authenticating? Are you applying MFA? Things that we, I guess, have kind of ignored in Kubernetes. Like I, I always come back to RBAC and in, 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 in within a Kubernetes cluster and multiply that times however many you have, there's humans and service accounts that need to go talk to the API to do things. And we've rarely questioned why they should have a specific level of access that they do and how they got there. Um, and I think PCI probably realized that these systems are in scope and we need to actually audit who's doing that. There's also uh, like the logging perspective of like, show me Jimmy's sessions from the last 60 days, right? Things like that, that I don't actually think people have been tracking very closely. And that's, that's, why we're building what we're building. Um, it's funny though, isn't it? When you think about it, that like the emphasis on MFA and you can see how this happened, but it's like the most, some of the most powerful systems, are the last ones to get it. Cause they're not user facing systems. You know, they're like right. administrator facing systems. And it's like, well, clearly they know what they're doing. And it's like, well, is that the point? That's a great point. Yeah. We see it with our like G suite or Okta or whatever your IDP of, of choices, but that never it's very rare that that trickles down into back office cloud systems that, you know, or even like that, a like a, a switches man- management interface or something. You know, like try exactly. try setting up a Yuba key with that, right? Like yeah, that ain't happen. Good luck, good luck. Yeah. Yeah. So aside from like compliance and stuff, like why are people buying, uh, you know, something like KSOX tools, right? Because I understand like PCI. I understand why you wanted to mention that because that's an sure. easy win. Because there's going to be some listeners out there going, oh god, yeah, of course, I've been meaning to get to that, right? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and now they're going to email you, but there's got to be like other organizations that are buying it, not just for a compliance reason. Sure. Yeah. So we have a few use cases. Uh, one that I'll start with that's not wasn't really our primary use case at first, but we're seeing more and more interest from is incident response. So this kind of gets like bundled into detection engineering. I won't call it threat hunting, but really, truly incident response. Like who, you know, how can I go back in time and find the state of a system. Did we miss a vulnerability or misconfiguration or like a log event that led to some greater issue? And, you know, you mentioned Kubernetes never, you don't see it in the New York Times as like Kubernetes cluster exposed, like everybody's data is gone, but there are things happening that go unreported or not, you know, maybe they aren't newsworthy or Kubernetes was part of the attack chain. So um, incident response is, is something we're seeing more and more of. There's also just 
good old fashioned security and governance across Kubernetes. Like yeah. how, like how, <laughs> you how don't need, I... you don't need everyone's Kubernetes to be getting burned down to like maybe turn yours into not a trash fire, I think is what you're saying. I think so. Right. Because we are the first question. Most folks who come to us ask is like, I don't know where my clusters are yet alone. What's going on inside of them. Can you put the spotlight on it? Right. And like that, that in and of itself is really valuable as a starting point. And then you can get into the more kind of the, the, the stepped approach of, okay, we found some things, let's work on fixing them. And then we can put in blocking capabilities to stop the bad thing from happening. Um, you know, we talked about rewinding 20 to 25 years. We're, we're kind of doing that again inside of this pretty complicated ecosystem. So that's, that's another, another piece of the puzzle. I think, there's also folks who have started like by image, like they, they do an image scanning sort of exercise, if you will. And they just point an image scanner at a registry and this flood of critical CVEs comes back and they don't really even know where they're, where, where those containers are running, what they're linked to, how they're configured in Kubernetes. And I think that story is something we can tell pretty well. You know, I think that the, we're maturing beyond like calling image scanning Kubernetes security because they're very different areas of focus. Are there particular verticals where you're finding success with this? Uh, we get asked that a lot. It's um, you have to run Kubernetes. So you're automatically kind of like B2B SaaS for sure. Um, FinTech or even just the financial institutions of the world are are using Kubernetes and OpenShift pretty extensively. Um, and, you know, I, I, anyone who it's all is, over the place, it's all over the yeah, place. Yeah, it's yeah, hard yeah. And say. we say this, yeah. we say this about people though. It's like anyone who's very online, <laughs> very online. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you know, we, we're working with a company that runs a meatpacking facility or many, many meatpacking facilities across Europe. And there's local Kubernetes clusters, plural, in every facility, all their IOT devices, all of the, the supply chain pieces, everything reports back to Kubernetes. So I, I don't think meatpacking facilities are on, you know, very, are very online. online. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it, it's hard to say, but it, it is everywhere and Kubernetes has its hands. So it's basically, it's basically anywhere where there's Kubernetes. Anywhere where there's Kubernetes. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a right. good place to be when you're making a Kubernetes tool. Is to is to so be relevant end, to anywhere yeah. where there's Kubernetes. That's that's yeah. great. Yeah, we we don't we don't discriminate. Any Kubernetes is good for us. All right, Jimmy Mester, thank you very much for joining us to give us the pitch on KSOC. Very interesting stuff, and all the best with it. Cheers. All right, thank you. That was Jimmy Mester there from KSOC, and you can find them at ksoc.com. That is K-S-O-C. Com. And yeah, if you're a shop that's heavily dependent on Kubernetes, you might as well have a look. Uh, our third and final snake oiler today is Sneak, and I'm guessing most of you know who Sneak are. Uh, they make a, uh, well, they make a whole bunch of tools, really. They make developer security tools, and they're obviously a major player there. And uh, yeah, they've launched a new product designed to tackle poorly constructed infrastructure as code. Drew Wright is the director of strategic content at Sneak, and he joined me uh, to walk through it. Here he is. More and more uh, developers and cloud engineers, DevOps engineers are using tools like in infrastructure as code tools, such as Terraform, CloudFormation, to express the infrastructure environment 
before they deploy it and then man continue to manage that environment with infrastructure as code. And the problem is, is you have security teams that are using tools to look at the running cloud environment to find misconfiguration issues and, and other vulnerabilities. And when they do, they prioritize those, they send a ticket over to the engineering team for them to go figure out how, you know, how to remediate this. Um, and what we found is in, in some of our research as well that engineers, engineering teams are spending you know, 50 plus hours a week simply managing all this man, uh, manual work of, of looking through the tickets that security teams are sending over. And what, 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 what organizations are doing is just digging themselves into a deeper hole because misconfigurations continue to happen at an increasing rate the more we use the cloud. And when we go to the cloud, we tend to use it a lot and we just keep using more of it. So what Sneak Cloud is doing is it's bringing cloud security early into the development lifecycle, just like we see with AppSec and open source security to help developers find and fix these issues in their infrastructure as code early when it's just easier and faster to fix these things. And what we see is about 70% reduction in cloud misconfiguration events occurring. And also engineers are more productive, security teams are more productive, and we're reducing risk. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense, right? Because, uh, you know, uh, software like Sneak is about, what do they call it? Shifting left, right? To, to prevent the mistakes before they go into production, right? But a stitch in time saves nine sort of thing. So you're applying the same sort of philosophy to uh, infrastructure uh, as, as code. Um, yeah, absolutely makes a lot of sense. I guess my question would be, you know, how are you doing this, right? Like, is this something that just examines the code that you're writing uh, to provision infrastructure as, co as code? Or is it like a provisioning system? Uh, you know, what are you actually getting when you buy this and how does it work? Well, it, it can apply security in multiple phases of the software development lifecycle. And, and the idea of shift left when it comes to cloud security itself is a bit misleading because what you're really doing is you're extending security left. You can never turn your back on the runtime when it comes to cloud security because even if you get everything right pre-deployment, it's going to mutate out from under you really, really fast. Well, I, I have to give you credit for honest pitching when you said that this will clean up 70% of the mess, right? Like uh, you always worry when people say it'll, it'll handle 100%. And I mean, the reality is, is, is no organization is, is 100% infrastructure as code. There's yeah. always going to be cloud infrastructure running that was not deployed or isn't currently being managed with infrastructure as code. But use infrastructure as code everywhere you can and make sure you secure it and you're, you're off on the right foot. But you still need to keep an eye on that runtime environment. So what Sneak Cloud does is it uses policy as code based on open policy agent. Uh, it's a, a cloud native computing foundation project, a wonderful uh, a framework for policy as code. And we built a unified policy engine, which means the, the engineers that are using Sneak Cloud to get their infrastructure as code secure pre-deployment or in CICD, the same uh, the same policies are being used to evaluate the running cloud environment. So, so they try to have... do something risky and it just says, Bzz. 
that sort of that's thing? That's right. Is that the idea? Yeah. That's right. I mean, in CICD, you can fail a build if the if if, if the the issue is severe enough, or you can kind of throw a flag. Um, developers that are developing infrastructures code can be getting rapid feedback on what they're getting wrong, what 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 kind of violation it is, as well as guidance on how to get it right so they can move forward. Um, rather than, you know, when 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 security happens post deployment, a lot of times those fixes aren't easy. You know, it mm. might ultimately wind up being a breaking change with the application and a lot of rework that happens. Well, this so, is the this is the issue, right? Is once something actually finds its way into prod, uh, you know, yeah, if you're not careful, that's sort of something you can't wind back easily. Not always. Some, you know, sometimes it's you know flip a bit in the you know in the console or in infrastructure's code and just deploy that and it's and it's good to go. Yeah, but, but sometimes it's, it's like you, you toggle something and then the whole thing comes crashing down. And you in need flames. to you need to evaluate <laughs> you need to evaluate that before you make the change. I mean, it might be a simple change, but uh, are you going to trust that it's a simple change? So you gotta you gotta uh, you do some analysis first before you go break things, right? Mm. So the idea is to essentially get a feedback loop. It's not just get your infrastructure's code right and you're good to go because we know that you know that's a risky assumption to make as well. But what you want to get is kind of code to cloud and back to code. So when you find an issue in the runtime environment, you can tie that back to the exact line of infrastructure as code so you know where the fix needs to be. And it really, what the unified policy engine does is it gets all of the stakeholders operating under the same source of trust, truth and trust of what's allowed to, to, to run in the environment and what isn't, rather than having a security team kind of using one tool to check the, the runtime environment. We see that with like kind of CSPM tools, and then the engineers using something else and a different policy framework for checking their infrastructure's code. Those are never gonna agree with each other. There's always gonna be conflict and friction there. Uh, but when you're using a unified policy engine that essentially just treats infrastructure as code as one phase of the cloud infrastructure lifecycle, then everybody is using the same policies to evaluate the same thing, but at different phases. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it just sounds like this. It is exactly what you pitched, which is by using this thing, it just, you know, it's just going to take a lot of dumb work off people's plates, right? It, it streamlines on the, remedi the on the remediation side, right? Like if people are actually using this and you've set your policies up right, like there shouldn't be stuff falling out the other side that's going to cause headaches. That's right. But then the security team that's kind of drowning in alerts and trying to figure out, you know, what's signal, what's noise, you know, how do we sort through all this stuff to even figure out what to throw over to the cloud engineering team for them to remediate, that goes way down. So the security team is is now more productive or they're able to do more with the team that they have than they were before. Yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Now, now you've just uh, done a report, haven't you, into some uh, cloud security stuff. Uh, what, did, what did you find? So one of the interesting things we found at the sur survey is when we ask res uh, respondents, you know, which team is primarily responsible for cloud security, uh, 42% of engineers say that the engineering team is now primarily responsible for cloud security, but only 19% of security professionals would say that the engineering team is primarily responsible. So huge discrepancy, uh, depending on who you ask as to whether or not the engineering team is, is, is responsible for cloud security. And what I read into that is, you know, engineers are just taking more ownership over over the problem, right? 
they're they're dealing with a lot of manual work. They've got all these tickets coming in. They've got all this remediation work, but they're also using infrastructure as code and and these other kinds of tools. And they're 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 just figuring there's got to be a better way. So they're taking more ownership. I think not so much to be more secure. And I think you know we all want to do things in a secure way, and we want our environments to be secure. But they're taking ownership over cloud security because the broken processes of cloud security are a real pain. There's a lot of headache involved. Um, I'm spending too much time, you know, chasing down remediations and fixing things rather than building, which is what I ultimately want to be doing. So software engineers by and large want to automate away annoying manual repeated tasks. And I think that because the cloud ultimately is just software, it's kind of a big global computer that we can program. We're seeing engineers take that on and start to program in security into everything that they're doing in the cloud. Just my final question is, uh, how are you licensing this? Is this, uh, is this a standalone product that people are going to buy? Is this like if you're, if you're a fully licensed sneak customer, you just get this? Like what's the, uh, what's the model there? Sure. So um, sneak cloud will be available as a standalone uh, product. Uh, but Sneak Cloud is also integrated into the big the, the the Sneak Developer Security platform, so we can start to kind of view cloud security and application security more holistically, which we really need to do because it's not always the misconfigured cloud resource as an entry point for an attacker, but it could be a, an application vulnerability. So I guess the the answer to the licensing licensing question is it depends. Well, it depends. Certainly, if you're if you're a uh, if you're a current Sneak customer, you can add Sneak Cloud onto your uh, onto your package as well. Okay, and that's just an additional licensing cost. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Got it. Understood. All right, Drew Wright. Thank you so much for joining us on Snake Oilers to walk through Sneak Cloud. Uh, sounds sounds like a worthwhile endeavor. Cheers. Thank you, Patrick. That was Drew Wright from Sneak there with a chat about Sneak's latest product. Big thanks to him for that. And big thanks to all of our Snake Oilers for participating in this round of pitches. Sneak, of course, is S-N-Y-K. So if you Google S-N-Y-K, you're going to find Sneak. Uh, and that is it for this edition of the Snake Oilers podcast. I will be back week after next with more security news and analysis. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.